This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 30, recorded on September 3rd, 2020. You are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah. I'm here with Dr. Fawner and Dr. Keller. How are we doing today? I'm thinking we should change up this intro sometime soon. What do you think? Well, it's I love the intro. Of course well, you do. You do it. <laughs> well, we're, we're on the cusp of a rebranding effort. I hope I didn't let the cat out of the bag there, but maybe an intro change and... I just feel like we should change it up, you know, you every every music? episode. I mean, I like the intro well, music. Keller I like does not music. like the music. Like, like oh well, apologies. Music or something? Apologies <laughs> to Baha <laughs> Namani, but I like the music. I don't think he listens. <laughs> I like. I, I, I don't I know. Listen. Just change it up for every every episode. Uh, well, I I'm I'm amenable, as you always are. Yes, you, you we will should. have to keep the this is the biobusters. Well, we can change the other fine. tagline. You know, the the NPR music here, I want the rock and roll, okay? That's just all. That's it. I don't know if the Rolling Stones or, you know, have you, Pearl Jam will be getting... Pearl Jam's we won't, closer to what I'm thinking. We won't be getting any licensing agreements from them anytime soon. Oh, probably. You guys watch uh, Park and Rec? Anybody watch Park and Rec? Oh, yeah. Love, love Park and Rec. You know that uh, one guy that does the radio show in Pawnee that mimics NPR, like oh. sort of voice and smooth... Oh, yeah. I thought you were talking about the, uh, we the bad one. We are here with Leslie. Nope, Leslie. <laughs> and then he just stares at her when there's like dead air. Yeah. I, rem- I remember my first my first class at, uh, at Teal College when we used to teach at Teal College. I was talking, to, it was parasitology. I was talking to the kids about like some cool parasitology story that like appeared on NPR, right? And I was like, oh, anybody read that NPR uh, story about XYZ? I don't remember what the parasite. And you heard crickets? Parasite story. And then it was crickets. No one knew what NPR was. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, how could you not know what NPR was, right? And then this one kid raises his hand and goes, is that the uh, radio station that puts you to sleep? <laughs> Are you for real? Uh, yes. So, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And then I, so, so obviously being me, I go on a rant I about bet. how you should know how your tax taxes are being spent. You should, you should pay attention. First class. First <laughs> exposure of these students to Dr. A. First class. You should pay attention how your taxes I spend. I'm, I'm not saying this way or that way. I'm saying this is a publicly funded thing and your taxes pay for it. Why aren't you paying attention? And then 40 minutes later, he went over the syllabus and that was That's the end right. of your first class. <laughs> so for the rest of the semester, <laughs> I made it my job to assign articles to read that are only from publicly funded sources. Made it my job to get these kids exposed to publicly funded radio and news. So... How did that effort go? I I still don't think anyone anyone of them knows what NPR is. <laughs> They're good kids, though. Other than a cure for insomnia. That is right. My uh, one of our lab tech. Actually, I think she was the lab manager for a while. Listened to NPR all the time. And all I all I got out of it was they weren't looking for money. <laughs> <laughs> it would be on during all their money drives. <laughs> So uh, we want to apologize to our listeners for uh, leaving you hanging there. It's been a while. It's been a month almost. Yeah. But, you know, we do have a good excuse. Classes started at LeetCom. We got a little bit busy. Just a little thing called work. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Trying to get th- things off, uh, up and running. MMS courses started. I know uh, we've taught in the MMS. Keller, you're up sometime next uh, semester. No, next next couple of weeks, right? Well, for micro, micro starts next week. Yeah, we've got the fungi and, uh, and parasites. You teach it. That's right. <laughs> Not me. Oh, that's next week. <laughs> no, I'm busy with biostats. The fungi and parasites, September 14th. Yeah, um, you've you've got a lot. lot of students. Yeah, 636 to be Look exact, according to the portal. Nice. Yeah. So and all, they're all, all doing very very well. That's good to hear. Round of applause. That's good to hear. Yeah. All three campuses, right? They're taking a class the, with you. The three northern campuses. Yeah. That's so right. you would say that. 
we are acclimating pretty decently to our new new uh operating procedures i guess due oh, to the I, pandemic our current yeah mm-hmm. hopefully i mean i'm hoping we'll go back to oh i was, hope so you know. yeah we were not affected by the zoom shutdown no the zoom hiccup no that went pretty well good good all right so what do we got uh today's scientist is but I'm dumb right. <laughs> This is Sir Frank McFarlane Burnett. He was born on September 3rd, 1899, and died on August 31st, 1985. Almost made it to his birthday. Almost. Almost. Uh, he's actually, I, I actually studied uh, historically uh, some, some history of microbial biology, and he was one of the people that I actually had to look up, but uh, Mac Burnett was freely known. Uh, he was an Australian microbiologist, a virologist, an immunologist, and he discovered a couple really cool bacteria, including the cause of agent of Q fever, which is Cox yellow burnettii, named after uh, Burnett, and also uh, the cause of agent of psittacosis, which is uh, Clodophila psittaci, also called pistachio by the majority of our students. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's responsible for developing assays to culture viruses, uh, including influenza virus, which added a lot probably to the vaccine discoveries that we've had in the past. The vaccine for viruses that's produced in uh, eggs yes. is still uh, done the same way yeah. he cultured influenza, which is insane that's to me. Insane. This is yeah. 60, 70 years later. I know. It's amazing. We need but a it, new way to produce uh, influenza oh, virus. When it, when it, it ain't broke, when it ain't broke, don't fix it. No, it. Okay, I agree with broken? you. It, it the time wise, yes, right. It takes it takes six seven months to to grow this stuff, mm-hmm. right? It, it's a long long process, right? So from a timeline perspective, I think we need to change. But in terms of growing it, hey, it still works. I yeah. agree with you. I need a lot of it. Right. Mm. You need a lot of it. That's absolutely correct. Uh, oh, anyway, his, his, and, and with all of those interesting things, his most, uh, his, his probably his most famous work, uh, and he did receive a Nobel Prize for it, involved elucidating the mechanisms of immune tolerance. Uh, he came up with the theory. He fell short of proving it, but it was later proved by uh, Sir Peter Medawar, and they both shared the Nobel Prize for uh, immune tolerance mechanisms in 1960. Yeah. What is immune tolerance? So, uh, uh, Peter, this uh, I'll, I'll tell you in a second before I forget. This Peter Medauer guy, he's mm-hmm. uh, huge in immunology. Big, oh, yeah. b- big immunology name. Oh, I know the name. Yeah, so 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 is Burnett, right? So, uh, effectively, immune tolerance is uh, your body not attacking itself. It's really important in autoimmune yeah, diseases. Absolutely. And uh, this guy came up with the theory in the 50s or so, yeah. uh, uh, showing that you develop that immune tolerance as a fetus in the womb. And he wasn't able to prove it. And uh, Peter Medauer came in uh, later with some third guy, I forget their name, I worked with Medauer. And then they were uh, able to... Uh, transfer uh, into uh, cells in utero to prime uh, mice. So they took uh, effectively foreign cells, put them into uh, 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 fetuses in mice fetuses. And then later on, they discovered that these uh, uh, mice uh, would not attack these foreign cells as adults. And uh, when they were re-challenged with those cells, and hence the immune tolerance mechanism development in utero. Uh, huge, huge for immunology. Huge. Uh, huge. Mind you, immunology at the time was a new field, right? Yes. No, no one knew sort of what it was. T cells and B cells. Uh-huh. People knew uh, about vaccines, right? But they did not really tie that field to immunology. There was a separate, most people don't know this, there was a separate field called vaccinology that had nothing to do with immunology. It was, oh, we're just going to give this one person a protein and then see if it develops immunity. If they're immune to it, then, hey, we move on. But they did not really go down, decipher, discover any of the immune mechanisms related to that. And eventually the two fields marry. And and, and now that they are, we've had some some major advancements. That's where the hepatitis B vaccine Uh comes into play. The the HPV and the new zoster vaccine for for recombinant vaccines. We wouldn't have those if we didn't understand 
Immunology. Uh, yeah. yeah, immunology. Yeah, 50 years ago, it would have been possible for someone to be a vaccinologist and know zero immunology. Today, yeah. it's not possible to do that. Yeah. Oh, no, oh no, no, well, no. I mean, some people purport to be uh, <laughs> scientists or vaccinologists that's without right. the proper background in immun- immunology. But you mean, that's a discussion for you another mean, podcast. You uh, mean Sarah McCarthy? No, is, 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 that, is her name Sarah McCarthy? No. No, we have a Sarah McCarthy. Yeah, Who I was going to say, of? we're not talking about our Dr. Sarah McCarthy. No, Who are you no. talking about? No, that, that, that like uh, California woman. No, Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy. Oh, the anti-vaccination Jenny McCarthy, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we've yeah. talked about that's her the before. Immu- that's the immunologist I listen to. Oh, I Sarah. would like to take a moment and apologize to Dr. McCarthy on behalf <laughs> Sorry of the Sorry we confused you. She's an excellent, Dr. excellent McCarthy scientist. Is, is, is an excellent <laughs> scientist and colleague. Not to be confused with... Jenny, Jenny McCarthy. And this is this Definitely is embarrassing. Be compu- oh yeah, <laughs> this is embarrassing. And, and that's why we're really, you know, can we get another five out. minutes out of this? Oh, we I, well, don't we worry. We'll bring could. it back up later okay, in the good. episode. Yeah. See, that's why I don't do. That's why I, I don't do this podcast by myself. I need someone to correct me. Yeah, that would have been hanging there for a while. <laughs> could you imagine the uh, corrections we would have gotten? Are you talking about Dr. Sarah McCarthy? Um, All right. So, quick COVID update. Where are we? So We've when it got. comes to, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's yeah. all yours. Oh, please. Uh, September 1st, uh, total worldwide cases are at approximately 26 million with 864,000 deaths. Total cases reported in the U.S. at about 6.2 million cases with 189,000 deaths. In the state of Pennsylvania, 140,000 cases with about 7,000, 7,700 deaths. And in Erie County, we're at about 1,300 cases with 47 deaths. Now, that that number is from the World uh, Counter website, which, you know, tries to be as accurate as possible. I saw a slightly different number for Erie County, but we are in that 30 to 40 range. Or so. Higher, lower, like what was the percentage difference? I think it was difference? like 35, 36. But okay. So, yeah. I tried to confirm with the health department, but anyway, so I around there. So we're not actually doing that bad in Erie County. No, no, relatively compared to other counties, especially nearby counties, uh, Erie County isn't doing, especially considering the uh, recent influx of students and, you know, coming off of the summer. I was worried summer tourist, tourist town beaches are packed at Presque Isle. I really thought we would be in a little bit worse, worse shape. But these guys could have uh, taken those cases somewhere else. That's true. So some uh, states have really got this under control. I was I was reading an article about New York State's positivity rate, zero point six one. Yeah, right now, it's impressive. Yeah, as zero point six one. And what do you attribute that to, or what do we think that? Well, I think two things: the the massive shutdown plus. It went rampant for a while, so there's probably a good deal of herd immunity. I wouldn't say. 70, 80 percent, but I, 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 pu- heard. I put it up there. I put it up there in some neighborhoods. Yeah. Okay, fine. In some neighborhoods. Not, not in all of New York no. State. Yeah, yeah. But in some neighborhoods in the city, well, I'd put it up. This there. virus is not as infectious as I mean. Again, back to the R not. It's not as infectious as things like measles. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to attain as high of a of a herd immunity rate right, out in the community. But with masks being used appropriately, my guess is you don't have to have that high of a herd immunity anyway. Yeah. You know, like that we're used to around well, the continued 70, mask, 80%. And probably since we've podcasted, you know, mask mandates across the country have increased. Uh, stores, wasn't it Walmart now that said you must yeah. have a mask when you're inside? Yeah. Uh, but we've all seen that that's not 100%. I mean, <laughs> we've, yeah, seen we've seen those videos. We've seen those videos. <laughs> we've but, seen those. But, you know, again, the majority, I think the majority of, of the population is following those guidelines. And that's, that's what it takes is the majority – you know, just like with herd immunity, we're not going to get 100% of people to get a vaccine. But as long as we can maintain a certain percentage of protected people that are following the guidelines, it can make up for those people that well, and if we really can, have no reason not to wear a mask. If we can carry that momentum into the next few months, hopefully get through a possible second wave of coronavirus infections potentially coming up in the fall with flu season and with the vaccine. I mean, and there's everybody decent, going indoors. Yes. I mean, there's a decent chance that, like we were talking about at the beginning, this time next year, maybe things are back to relatively... That's the hope. Uh, you know, normal a normal environment. But again, there are going to be changes that maybe some people aren't aware of. Some of these changes that have come about from the pandemic are going to be permanent. 
It's just a question of which ones stick and which ones don't. Yeah, I'm also afraid the whole thing with the vaccine is that people have maybe too high of expectations or high hopes for the vaccine. They think, oh, vaccine comes and then uh, we we all get it and then it's back to normal. And I think people are not factoring in the fact that, A, not everybody's going to get it. Mm. B, the vaccine is not going to be 100%. No. No. I, I can guarantee that. From right now, well, mm-hmm. from his history and other vaccines, yeah, yeah. There's no, just the no data way it's going to be 100. And see, people confuse vaccine preventing infection with vaccine preventing disease. I agree. And I think even though people may be vaccinated with this thing, maybe it has a 60, 70 percent rate of preventing disease. That does not mean not you still don't get the virus. Yes, sure. And uh, but hey, if you don't get disease, that's a great well, thing. At, I, this, at this point, with with where we are with coronavirus, I'd rather have people get it and be asymptomatic yeah. and add to that that yeah. pool of herd immunity because mm-hmm. that's I I guarantee that's what's happening in New York City. We, we They had it. It was there. It was rampant. It was being mm-hmm. spread before Absolutely. probably a month or months before we saw a lot of cases. I agree. I agree. Even before those uh, airport or like yeah, flight ab- lockdowns. Or Absolutely. Whatever. It was there. I, I mean, it, it, the disease looks like every other respiratory disease so so are you worried about you know an individual who is asymptomatic upon initial infection a few months ago and they get reinfected as we're going to talk about later in the podcast and maybe they get reinfected with a slightly different form of the virus and now they're showing symptoms now they get slightly more sick or even more sick i mean my thoughts sure I, I don't see enough proof in my mind yet to say that people that that there's a reinfectivity rate. Yeah, I mean, these, these are just, we have very sparse these, these cases are just right couple, now. A couple handful of asides, right? Well, reinfect, reinfectivity leading to disease, I agree. But I think people are getting reinfected, but they have antibodies. Yeah. Well, then you're not probably reinfected. If you've got neutralizing antibodies, you don't get infected. That's the whole point of being protected. Do they get exposed? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure, they'll get the different. they'll get the virus. It won't do anything. It just gets neutralized and gone. Gone. Yeah. So that's not an infection. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not actually replicating and spreading it. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I agree. Sure. I agree. Oh yeah. Of course, people are going to get exposed to it again, just like we get exposed to Staph aureus on a daily basis. Right. You know? Right. So you know, at least with that side of it, I I don't think there's enough evidence to say that that we're going to see a lot of those reinfections. And the other thing is I don't see, at least again, historically, mm. coronaviruses don't mutate like rhinovirus right. does. I right. mean, think about it. We've, we've had, what, four major coronavirus strains uh, forever in adults. And then just once in a while, it hops from animals. That's my concern, mm-hmm. is that it can always happen again with a brand new virus strain. Yeah. But, but is it mutating enough in humans to cause... Uh, another new disease, another new pandemic. I I don't see that happening. Also, I think most of the mutations that they've seen have not been in like the spike protein, right? right. So so the neutralizing antibody would still work, right? The the Absolutely. major one they saw was some protein that has no gain or loss of function, so it just did not matter. I forget the name of the protein SL4 or something, but uh, they, they didn't see anything. They all have yeah. fun names, don't they? Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> so did we? But, uh, with 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 the vaccine, and I'll I'll leave us with a last thought. Mm-hmm. Even if it is not a hundred percent effective, or 50, 60, or it just does not induce strong immunity, but induces immunity strong enough to prevent deaths, I would consider that a win. Hundred percent. If we get to a point where we have a vaccine that prevents people from dying, they still get sick. They're out for a week. They feel like shit. But it's preventing deaths. I think that's that's a win. That's a big win. I will take it. That's a good vaccine. Well, it just becomes part of the lexicon of other viruses and colds that we deal with on a normal basis, which is what we hope coronavirus eventually becomes. It's not going to be novel anymore. It'll just be one more thing that we have to prevent against. Well, and that, then that brings up do we – so we have a vaccine in preparation now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. What happens when everybody's been vaccinated or had it? Do we even need it anymore? Is it going to be that rampant mm. or just another infection yeah, that I we think have to be come aware back. of? I think yeah. it'll come back next. It, it'll be seasonal. I don't think this is going away. But to the point that we need to vaccinate for it. Like a brand what, new distribute, distribution like, manufacturing of the, of the vaccine. vaccine yeah. well, depends on how good, depends on how good this vaccine is. That's a good point, right? And so, so how effective and and 
And how long lasting the, is that immunity? What's the herd immunity? Absolutely. Is, so is, it'll be interesting to see. So if a vaccine induces antibody production in people and that antibody lasts for a year, two years. Well, yeah, we might need it again like the flu. We'll need it again maybe every other year. I don't know, depending don't know. on how good those vaccines are. I don't know. It's interesting. All right. Very so interesting. <laughs> we've had a lot of shutdowns across the entire world. There's a paper that came out on June 8th in uh, Nature. Uh, they looked at uh, six countries, China, South Korea, Iran, Italy, France, and the United States. And they believe that the shutdowns prevented or delayed close to 531 million infections. In the U.S. alone, they believe lockdowns uh, uh, have been... Uh, uh, pre or, or without the lockdowns, there would have been 4.8 million more confirmed cases and 60 million total infections. So uh, uh, it looks like the shutdowns have worked. I know there's some question, oh, did the shutdown work? Did the shutdown not work? Was I it mean, too excessive? Not enough? Yeah, you know, people but have I, many I, debates over that. I think there's no question that if people are not in crowded places, they get less infected. I, I mean, mean, that's just intuitive. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I, I don't think you need a nature yeah, paper for that. The, I know. But <laughs> and, and so this this would not have ever been published in Nature if it wasn't for the pandemic. Yeah. It was, it's, it's based on estimates and not real numbers. And they're not talking about the number of cases. They're talking about the number of infections, mm -hmm. not – uh, again, asymptomatic infections symptomatic, predominate. Yeah. Right. That we already know that. And that's right. good. That's a good thing. Yeah. So the yeah. numbers could have been larger. They, they could have been. But here they're saying infections. They're not saying cases. Right. A case would be somebody who's infected and has symptoms. Yeah. You can be infected and not have any symptoms. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so it worked. <laughs> uh, let's move on at testing so everybody wants to go back to work everybody wants to go back to school do does everybody want to go back to work or back to school i mean if I you're know. paying me and not me having to go back to work i'm i'll i'll be happy to sit at home but i gotta go back to work to get to get paid that was a joke poor <laughs> joke good continue but uh yeah so, so the test yeah and 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 so we talk about okay schools reopening this this and that and for I think people uh, feel safe that that stuff is, that you can go back safely to work. You have to be able to have great testing in place where you can test someone and isolate them right away. And the current tests we have are not quick enough in terms of the turnover, right? So yeah. in some places they're they're waiting six seven days for results, and that just defeats the purpose. Here, We're, I I just know with with certain colleagues that that have. They're not positive, but, you know, the, with contact tracing, perhaps needed to have a, a test done. They're waiting days for it, yep. the results. Well, not only it's the purpose, not, like, only the time, not, not only the timeline of positive results, but also the accuracy of the tests themselves. I mean, the um, possibility of false positives. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if you read uh, the NFL thing a few weeks ago. They were sending all their tests to a lab. They were called coming back positive. They started canceling training camp sessions. It turned out all those tests were false positives. Yeah. It was insane. <laughs> or the whole thing with the Ohio governor, remember? Oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. He went to that meet. Was a time. He went to meet Trump, and then he tested positive on the saliva test, and then when he went back to Ohio, tested negative twice on some other tests. Yep. I think the Trump. I think Trump didn't want to meet him, so he probably <laughs> he probably oh, made a, a saliva uh, positive. A, we'll label that so as a conspiracy theory, saliva, or it? or maybe he didn't want to meet Trump. I don't know. One or the other. We'll label that as a conspiracy <laughs> theory and just move on. Uh, Doctor A is good with conspiracy theories. But any, <laughs> that was a joke. But anyway, so the, a new test came out by Abbott, right? And it yeah. it got it received U.S. FDA emergency use authorization, and it is a Currently priced at $5, 15-minute, easy-to-use COVID antigen test that does a nasal swab. So this is not a nasopharyngeal swab. This is not the one that goes all the way up. It feels like they're taking a sample from your brain, right? <laughs> this is just uh, just effectively uh, picking your nose with a Q-tip, right? How fun. <laughs> so uh, it, it is the, uh, uh, Abbott says it's rapid, highly portable, relatively affordable, uh, demonstrated sensitivity is 97.1% and specificity is 98.5. What's the difference? Between those? Sensitivity and specificity. Well, since it's, Okay, so um, for the people that are, really have the disease, 
If you took 100 of them, 97 would have a positive test. That's what that means. Three of them would not. Mm -hmm. And um, conversely, if, if you took people that truly didn't have it, we knew they'd have it. Um, so this is how they, you know, this is how they test new tests. So mm -hmm. We want to know. Um, this is a screening test, by the way. Um, if uh, for this one it was 98.5, which means out of 100 people, 98.5, 100 people that aren't sick, 98.5 will have a negative test. It's very so the good risk numbers. of a false right. positive is extremely low it's, with this new the, test. Those numbers are very low. Are ex specifically for a new test. Mm -hmm. right. Extremely high. Yeah. Usually we're talking, you know, 90%, sometimes even right. less than that. So now the advantage of this, even if there is a false positive, false negative, the advantage of this test, it's a 15 minute test. It's a 15 minute test. It, it, it's $5. Exactly. So you can give it to someone every day. And this is eventually, great. if there is a false positive, false negative, you will catch that infection. Well, this is great for companies who now have that extra cost incurred of having right. to give, like, think about schools, thousands of tests or some schools testing per day or at least per week. Well, it depends. So it depends on the school, right? We're yeah. going to talk about some universities. They completely shut down because they freaked out, mm -hmm. right? But there are some universities that have a testing strategy in place. I know you guys rip uh, uh, rip on me for going back to Cornell all the time, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping up with their uh, testing plan. They're testing kids twice a week. Andrew Bernard over here from the office. Cornell, <laughs> Cornell, Cornell. Go ahead. So you, you have to get tested when you arrive on campus, and then you get a testing uh, a scheduling every twice a single week. They're doing the testing in place. Wow. You get the result pretty much like right away. They had to like revamp one of their labs to become a COVID lab. It's costing them a lot of money. But yes. guess what? They're... Still they make more money by being open. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's strict, it's stringent, but I can't argue with the logic there. What I'm saying is this test would be much more efficient and usable by other by institutions, I by agree. other colleges. I agree. And, you know, if you think about it, as a country, we have spent literally trillions of dollars. This would be peanuts compared to yeah. even if you were to test someone every day. Think like essential workers or teachers and students you want to send back to school. Test them every day. What the hell? Five bucks a piece every day. doesn't matter. It's yeah. going to be cheaper. I wonder what the stability is. Probably pretty good. So uh, since this is an antigen test too, we should probably say that you're actually testing for the virus itself, mm. not antibodies. So there's, there's other tests, so many different tests out there. Uh, when we test for antibodies, uh, some people – Will it'll take them a while to make those Weeks. antibodies? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah, and yeah. so uh, that that's antibody tests are more uh, appropriate probably for for long term studies. See who had it, when didn't have symptoms. Yeah. Here we want to know is the virus really there? Right. So Much more precise. This is, this is better. Yeah. So you're asking, is it a game changer? I I, I think agree. it is. One hundred percent, it's a game changer. I think it is. This is huge. Yeah, this is going to get us back to work faster. And that's a good thing. I mean, this economy has thing. suffered. Uh, we need to move I mean, on. I would stay home if you paid me. But I would oh, too. Yeah. Who would <laughs> sign me up? You know, who wouldn't? Yeah, I, I agree with you. But, you know, that, that you know, not to get political with you, but there are candidates oh, for that. Are. Here we go. <laughs> there are candidates for that. They'll pay you to stay home. Probably. <laughs> All right, okay, well, so where are we with the return of school plans? So recent uh, collection of data from about August 26th, um, a New York Times survey of more than 1,500 colleges and universities have revealed at this point, so this is from the time of the pandemic uh, beginning to August 26th, revealed 26,000 cases and 64 deaths among those 1,500 surveyed colleges and universities from the start of the pandemic. And so, you know, schools and universities and colleges were hit, you know, pretty hard. And I just went through and sampled some of the data and took a look at them uh, from different colleges just to see what are some of the more high profile colleges that have had high numbers of cases. We have Georgia College, um, 427 out of 7,000 students. Those are cumulative numbers um, had contracted COVID. This ended up being the highest among colleges. That's a, that's a high number. It is. Um, Arizona State University, 161 out of 32,000 total positive cases. Now that is including both students and employees of the institution. And um, 
Notre Dame, that was one of the more high-profile colleges from a few weeks ago, they delayed in-person classes because hundreds of positive cases started popping up and being detected. So again, we talked about that panic and about some colleges reversing their decisions. I don't know, is Notre Dame back on campus yet? I, back I on don't site? So. I don't think so. I don't think so. So they delayed and... Some maybe, places completely shut down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we talked Fully about... Online. North Carolina State, yeah. right? Most students are being heavily encouraged to move off campus due to such a rapid spread. Um, Towson University, they're completely conducting their fall semester virtually. Um, University of Oregon, primarily remote, but first year students are given the choice to enroll in person and to go on campus. Yeah. So what we're really seeing here is a, very much a spectrum of either remote or bring them in. You talked about Cornell. When it comes to if you have the facilities in place to test and the money, and the money but some colleges don't have that. Uh, Smaller places don't have the endowment. Exactly. Yeah. The, the problem with colleges that I think is different than schools and different than workplaces. Workplaces, most people live in that county. In schools. Mm -hmm. Schools, most people live in that county. Colleges and universities are a mass migration event. Yes. Yeah. Every time semesters go back, fall semester starts again, literally. And every every college will, will release that statistics because they're proud of it. Mm -hmm. We have a student from every state. Yeah. We have a student from 100 plus yeah. countries. This is a mass migration event. You've got virus coming in from everywhere. And honestly, that's why I was so worried uh, for the past few weeks because of all of the local universities, the schools going back, the students. I mean, how much would you say the population in Erie increased just from Mercyhurst, Gannon, Barron, everybody coming back? Uh, 10,000 10, at least. Yeah. But I mean, now we're a little bit different here Yeah, because we don't have dorms. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that makes a difference in a lot of these universities. You have dorms, you have fraternity houses, sorority houses. Right, a lot of students are crammed into uh, smaller places. Uh, we we're a little bit different as a medical college because we don't have dorms, Look, and I, we we have a lot of policies in place too. I, that's part of it, but I'm going to tell you that uh, I don't know if you remember being that age. Maturity, of course. Yeah, we would have maturity level. We would have yeah. been. Part I go driving around <laughs> Edinburgh where I live, mm -hmm. and I there's a university there. There's a university now. I, I, there's a lot of kids walking around without masks. So. Yeah, and. I don't stop them and ask because that's not my job. But you're off the clock. I'm off the clock. <laughs> you know, I uh, they look of the age that they would be. In, well, in, think in about college. like authority and like you said, the maturity level at that point. If I ran up to you and I said, "21 year old Chris Keller, hey, you better put your mask on, and I'm going to measure the social distance that you're at with your friend," you're probably going to walk away from me and start laughing and go on your merry way and share some beers. That's me saying probably, not for sure, but this is hypothetical. Definitely. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I suspect if we were college students now, aged 18, 19, 20, recently left home, going to college, yeah, we would have probably been part of the problem and not the solution. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a great debate and a great question, but also kind of a dangerous question where... You know, what is the proper response with schools reopening? Is it going completely virtual? Is it what we're doing more hybrid, giving the choice virtual? Uh, those who want to remain virtual remains off campus. Those who want to come in can come in and we have policies there and mitigation strategies. I don't know. I don't know if there is a correct answer. We'll find out. We'll Dr. Keller's shaking his head. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> so so our, our plan currently for first years is to have them all come back for OPP and HP after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Every single student, that's First the years. plan. They're coming yeah. back after Thanksgiving. That's, okay. that's our current plan. Yeah. So unless something happens. Well, yeah, I mean. Hopefully there'll be a vaccine by then. But, you know, uh, Moderna, which is the one that's sort of maybe further along than anybody else, is still enrolling people in phase three in September. So. I don't, sus I don't suspect they'll have uh, 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 something up and running before October, November. Well, that's that's, that's probably when they're going to find the results. That's a rosy solution. To, they have to get the results, look them over. If they're positive results, then they can petition to go to the next phase, which is to ramp up production. And we're not going to be first in line to get it. Maybe Dr. Fawner. 
Well, well I am uh, special. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think, I think uh, uh, honestly, I don't think we should get it first. I think first-line responders should, doctors, oh, nurses. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we should I be first in line. we should be first in line to get it. <laughs> <laughs> We're at LECOM and ERIE. Right. Well, and, we are the biobusters. Yeah. I mean, I think that brings with it a That's certain right. influence. That's right. So, Although we were not able to secure Dr. Fauci for an interview. <laughs> no, we were not. But we'll try again. Despite us trying. So, okay, so where are... We've already discussed reinfections a little bit, unless you want to talk about it again. So I this, guess just to emphasize that there's no reason to freak out about no, that. Bringing no. it up as a debate point and yeah. something to keep track of is important. But there, there isn't a ton of evidence about reinfections and uh, occurring at a high rate and reinfections leading to uh, worsened symptoms upon reinfection. You can, and you can bet that we're, I mean, if you're our listeners, we're, we'll be paying attention to the data. And yes, of course. The stories that come out about reinfection because that, that would change the game again completely. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, currently, in my opinion, and, and from the facts that you see in science, People that are getting coronavirus are not getting it again. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And until until I see some real proof otherwise, I mean, that's my scientific opinion. Right. And 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 the few cases that they saw in Hong Kong in Europe, where people who upon reinfection got either a milder form of the disease or were asymptomatic, and media freaked out obviously because that's what they do. And I'm already thinking, like, no, that's actually a good thing. That's an indication that you have an immune response. You've developed antibodies. They are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you're effectively protected. That's why you have a milder or asymptomatic form the second time around. Well, in the timeline, too, for this patient in uh, the U.S., he was reinfected or at least reinfected sometime in May. And at the end of May, that's when his symptoms returned and worsened slightly. If there was a higher reinfection rate, and this was an issue to be concerned about, June, July, August, already in September, we would have seen four or five months worth of these incidences popping up. Just one being reported in the past five months. There's no reason to be concerned at this point. No, no. Uh, what about that uh, CDC report that said, and you know, I'm, I'm, people picked that up too and then ran with it, saying numbers are inflated. But what about that CDC report that said 97% or so of the deaths f- that were attributed to COVID had underlying conditions? And then the media, again, media, I got to love it. And we're like, oh, you're saying 3% only died from the virus and 97 did not? And I'm like, oh, jeez. No, that's, that's ridiculous. But, um, you know, I, I completely believe those numbers. I mean, it's yeah, just like course. the flu. Yeah, exactly. The, the flu virus might might be lethal but it's a lot more lethal in people that have underlying conditions exactly and that does not mean you died from diabetes you still died from the flu no, these are comorbidities and they Absolutely. put people at higher risk their immune response is not up to the task yeah. or sometimes it's over response but no of course the cdc isn't saying three percent of people died from covid well again that's the thing with either whatever sides there are or whoever's reading that number you can look at the same thing. We look at it and see, okay, a it's a comorbidity issue, yeah. but we can come to a variety of different conclusions. No well, reason no, to panic. No, that conclusion is completely wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the deaths are attributed to COVID. Yes. It's just that there are other issues that are underlying. So, right. And that is so important. And it's, it's sad that the facts like that are going to get twisted because – we know who to be concerned about. So when we were worried about not well, we need a, to identify high risk groups. We have to. Right. So when we were worried about not having a ventilator for every person that breathes, mm-hmm. that's not what it was about. Mm-hmm. It was about making sure the people that needed those ventilators yes. had access to them. Yeah. And so identifying those those COVID uh, underlying risk factors, <laughs> comorbidities is very very important. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's sad that that be twisted. Yeah. And, you know, now later on, a few months after, we now know, well, it's all that clotting that's happening that's more dangerous than the low oxygen. It's just it's just it's just a moving it's a moving target because it's it's a it's new, new. Thing. we're learning. We're learning. OK, enough about Corona or anybody else. Got no. Anything about Corona? No. I think enough we can corona. wait till the next episode. Uh, Dr. Keller is <laughs> coroned out pretty much. 
So, but so, no Corona Light it out. No, Corona Light's fine. That's corona probably the you'll find. Oh, yeah. Corona Light is good, yeah. That's you such know, a good summer beer. That's know. a shout out to uh, uh, my good friend, John Lozeritis, who is a huge, huge corona. opponent of Corona Lights. So shout out to you, you buddy. Proponent or? Opponent. Opponent. Doesn't like it. Does not like it. What what does he drink? Uh, Icy light mango. um, Icy light. Listen to this. I mean, I love icy light mango, so I'll drink it too. Mango. IPAs. Uh, you know, porters, coffee porters. No, 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 no. Incredible, <laughs> incredible taste in beer. But come on, summer beers, light beer. Yeah, it's quite all right. All right. So, uh, how about some interesting uh, medical advances recently? You had, you had come across a few that you wanted to talk about, Foner. Yeah. So um, recently, they discovered that there may be on the horizon a brand new test available for diagnosing um, Alzheimer's disease at an earlier at an earlier rate at an earlier time period, which would help to treat this very nasty disorder. Uh, this is a disease again, just a brief background, where you see uh, brain cells degenerating, so the nerves degenerating, and it's one of the most common forms of dementia, which obviously involves uh, the declining in cognition, behavioral, and social skills. And one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is the accumulation of those kind of nasty protein deposits, right? So what are known as plaques and tangles. So plaques come about due to beta amyloid protein deposits, and they're kind of clogging up the spaces between the nerves, right? And you get these tangles due to accumulations of tau proteins building up inside of brain cells. And what both of these protein deposits basically do is to start blocking the communication among the large amount of nerves in the human brain. You disrupt processes, you disrupt the ability of these nerves to function and live, and eventually they begin to degenerate and die. And now, when you when you say earlier, what do you mean? So, what when is when is now the average age at which Alzheimer is detected, and what what does earlier mean? That's actually a very good question. Um, I could not say average age. That's um, fortunately not, or unfortunately, something that I didn't have looked up. I'm glad you asked this though while we were on the air. Maybe you could come up with an answer uh, <laughs> while I'm talking. Out, so I'm hoping he's googling it right now. I'm assuming he looked it up right now, and this was just a test of my Alzheimer's uh, background knowledge. But um, while you look that up, uh, this thing can be very difficult to diagnose, right? Because there's no specific singular lab test, scan, or exam. Really, it very much so, yeah. and usually only when individuals are suffering from the disease. Um, doctors can potentially misdiagnose it as being another form of dementia, not just dementia caused by Alzheimer's. And one of the huge needs currently for diagnosing Alzheimer's at an earlier stage, we need to find uh, non-imaging biomarkers. So something that might not be able to, uh, something where you don't need to, uh, you know, use what an MRI or any kind of brain scan to try to diagnose it. And there's a cost factor here as well, right? Sure. These imaging methods can be very expensive. Time Insurance consuming. companies may not pay for it. Uh, you're talking about time consuming as well. If there was a singular blood test you can use to identify a protein or another type of molecule in the blood that would singularly identify Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. that would be a huge leap forward, a huge advance, right? So... Um, Again, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask. So, so for diagnosis, you know, we just said mainly it's symptomatic early on. But what's the gold standard right now? Is it to do an MRI or a brain CT? So, brain CT, standard brain imaging, mm-hmm. neurological exams, um, cognitive assessments to see if there is any decline in that behavioral and social. I mean, those are general, um, general yeah. kind of too ambiguous. And I'm just it, thinking, you know, uh, you know, somebody who's senile or even with Alzheimer, sometimes you know they. they Doing an MRI or CT is not—it's not comfortable. Yeah. So they're gonna—they're not gonna sit still. Well, and also they can find—they can find some biomarkers that may, and the important word there is sure. may indicate Alzheimer's by doing a spinal tap, by well, taking again, measurements of cerebrospinal fluid. But who? I mean, who? Especially at right, that age. So a blood. Hmm. Yeah, a blood test would be the easiest, most efficient way to hopefully diagnose. So is this going to detect it earlier or just easier? Earlier. So average age of Alzheimer's 
diagnosis yes. currently is 80 years of age. Is wow. it really? Yeah. Jeez. I would have thought it'd be a little bit younger. Well, and you can get very early cases well, early of Alzheimer's. And sometimes this diagnosis, disease, right. yeah, exactly. the disease can be asymptomatic for mm -hmm. decades. Yeah. You know, these plaques could start accumulating in the brain decades sure. before the initial onset of symptoms. My great And for this Alzheimer's. Uh, I'm sorry to hear my, that. Yeah, my mother believes she has it. Shout out to mom. Um, she listens. She, she does listen. I know that. So <laughs> we'll see if she... Well, my father, who does not listen because, you know, technology... Um, he yeah. will sometimes attribute his probably just standard forgetfulness yeah, to Alzheimer's. In the same boat here. Um, but so let's talk about the, the test real quick. So it detects it earlier. 20 years, according to the article I just looked at. 20, by 20 years. So earlier, 20 years. Er, by 20 years earlier. So you're going to get a lead time effect with this thing. And a lot of the treatments that are currently. Know? Well, here's the thing. Would a lot of the, know? If I'm going to get, if I currently have it and it's going to progress. Yeah. If, the, if I could get a treatment two decades earlier, or minimize maybe that treatment, not necessarily is, treatment, um, just w but, things to uh, delay. Well, if the treatment can delay, and let's say I don't show severe symptoms until I'm then yes. mid eighties or nineties, yeah. Is there anything one hundred percent that does delay? More investigations are needed, right? We need right. to research this thing more. So that's why I'm asking. So there's nothing out there one hundred percent that's going to say, "Hey, Chris Foner, you have Alzheimer." Uh, or you're going to develop it in 20 years. Well, what would okay? Now, now you have now you know you have a diagnosis 20 years earlier. I would be the type because I like to know things so that I can spend the next three decades worrying about it. Here we go. <laughs> what what about you? you would, would you want to know? No. Okay. No. If now that's that's if there was no 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 treatment no cure let's say okay. No, I wouldn't want to know. Would I you not? It, want, I, think I mean, it, would you not want to prepare? I mean. Uh, it, it, it's 20 years that I'm going to probably let it own me. Yeah. 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 And it's, it becomes everybody's problem. Like when you have a family, it becomes, I mean, oh, think, about, it. Think, of, <laughs> think about my wife. I mean, that's something where I'm, she now knows decades down the line, she might have to take care of me. And yes. that's a, that's a magnitude of care. That's, you know, substantial. And, and let's face it, there's different, Levels of severity of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. well, of course, there is. Yeah. Is this test going to tell you? Probably not. Yeah, it's just not now. I, I mean, with a new test, I doubt right. they have that type of data. Right. And maybe the, uh, this may also be important for uh, people who know that Alzheimer's, uh, you know, their loved ones have had it previously. Should those individuals be tested for this biomarker, uh, be undergo this blood test? When they are 40, 45, and 50, I mean. I just thought right, we should probably say as far as I'm aware, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is not commercially available. Uh, no, this is still we, being, it's so expected we, that another two to yeah. three years, they need to make improvements, get FDA approval to implement the tests yeah. in standard so, diagnoses. This is, this is a few years off. Right. But right now after Well, that's being, for our listeners, not for me. Oh, of course. But um, just for our listeners to know. Right now, it can identify the biomarker, this protein called P217, in over 90% of cases in people that have definitive Alzheimer's. Yeah, so, like that is, so that's the other that's, thing. That's, that's great. It's great. I, I think we should have a screening test. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to get it. But I just, again, want to reiterate that we're talking about medical advances today. These aren't all necessarily available for commercial use. So you could not get this no, test. No, not it's yet. It's not currently available. This will be years down the line, but... At least it is some type of ray of hope or promising to anybody, either people directly suffering from Alzheimer's or concerned about it or taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's, that it's, it's, it's an advancement. It's something that may lead to better outcomes in the future. Well, not just outcomes, but better predictions, better studies, uh, and perhaps even better interventions. Because if you know yeah. the patient population you're dealing with, you know who you need yeah, to intervene. Yeah, exactly. I just yeah. won't be one of them. Exactly. But right. I mean, stats, I mean, stats show that the the longer you live anyway, more than 50, 60 percent of people over the age of 80 have some sort of Alzheimer related dementia. Yes. So this this is not necessarily, I mean, obviously, genet be genetics can, can contribute. Yeah. But the more we all live, uh, it's going to be standard, a fact of life. Cognitive decline is oh, real. Thing. Exactly. Sure. Cognitive decline will occur at, at old age. I mean, that's in that's. It's an un. It's gonna happen. There you go. Thank you. I really, <laughs> I really struggled with that one. You know, I, I just want to say something. Remember, we were talking about prions a few episodes ago, like mm -hmm. yeah, before the pandemic. 
And uh, I think that was one of our cases. That's why we were talking about we were talking about Kuru, right? And uh, in some of those diseases, instead of uh, the spongiform appearance, you see the amyloid plaques. And they and of course they at that point attributed Alzheimer's possibly to a prion disease. But mm. it's interesting how those it, it's a neurodegenerative disease, just like Alzheimer is. Just it, it has more of an acute onset mm-hmm. once you have symptoms, as yeah. opposed to. You know, Alzheimer's taking years. So yeah, more progressive, more chronic condition. I mean, we need we need something to go and sweep up those amyloid plaques. Well, and think about we don't know yet. Are those plaques? Are they a consequence of the disease, or are they a cause of the disease? Yeah, there know. is no. There's so much we don't know about Alzheimer's that, yeah. I mean, that field of research will always be popular, unfortunately, because we need more data. Absolutely. Okay, did we want to talk about in this episode um, the some of the stuff about HIV natural clearance that we saw, or do we want to go to uh, blood factors and the beneficial effects of exercise on neurogenesis? Well, I mean, we've that got sounded boring. Oh, did we, it? We've got ten fifteen minutes. So, uh, <laughs> did uh, it though? Which which one was boring? The second one. The benefits of There's exercise. There's too many words in there. Well, also, Fonner is the I only know. one who exercises here. So. <laughs> I, well, I didn't include that one. <laughs> There's no, uh, no no nepotism here. Trust me. And what? again, you know, if, if, if there's something out there, a disease that you want us to do our homework on and talk about, we're always happy to do it. Yeah, this is just us coming across articles where we thought, wow, that's kind of cool. Look at this new biomarker. Yeah, this episode is about medical advances. We'd love to hear from listeners on, you know, besides coronavirus, we've really hit that a lot in the last half year. But anything medical related, students listening, MS1s, MMS, if you want a disease discussed. MS2? Oh, sorry. MS2s could the use it for board reviews. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't want to single. We don't want to exclude our MS2s. Any student, teal student, still listening to us, contact us. Let us know what you want us Any to talk about. Any single listener out there. <laughs> so easy. Uh, other than your mom, you mean? <laughs> Mrs. Keller, please talk to us. <laughs> Email us. Seriously, if there's something you want us to to look up and you're interested in hearing about, we uh, we have the ability to do that research. We do. So, I mean, the, the, the one study that you have looked up that talked about HIV clearance. I, I, it's interesting. It is interesting because so why why is it hard to get rid of the virus? Well, so many variants, right? Uh, the virus mutates at a high rate. Yeah. So it's hard to find Quasi any kind species. of. Uh-huh. It's hard to find any type of drug or treatment that's going to anchor itself to that ever evolving genome to actually treat. Right. Okay. I don't know. Those integrase inhibitors seem to be working very well. So. Along those lines, the mm-hmm. fact that it integrates in, into our cells is probably the next thing you're going to say. Yes, yes. We have a treatment that can stop that. Very little resistance. But after it happens. When it happens. difficult. Okay. Right. But it really hasn't been happening yeah. yet is yeah. what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to hold on to that yet. We'll so, see. so so, for those of you listening out there, HIV is is unique. Not unique. A lot of viruses. Well, a lot of some viruses do virus. retroviruses it's, you're talking about yeah, right it's a unique virus in that when it infects you it doesn't just infect your cells it takes its own genome plugs it into your own genome mm-hmm. so every time you make a copy of your cell you're also making a copy of that viral virus genome, that viral yes. genome becomes part of your own dna mm-hmm. so so it's really hard to get rid of it after the fact because you got to really cut out the dna of hiv from that human mm-hmm. which is Impossible. Impossible. Right? Only the, the virus can do it yeah. really, the, right the, now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the only people that ha- – the, the only treatments or the only few medical cases that have been able to do that were people that have undergone effectively bone marrow bone transplants. Marrow transplants. Yeah. We, we took all of your cells, depleted them, got rid of all of them and replaced them anew, right? And so I well, – I, currently the data say that they have cured themselves. However – I think it's still there. I think it's still there too. Mm-hmm. Just in very, it's just so, not so trapped or at very low levels. No, I, I think it's there. Okay, I think it's probably very low levels. So we, we, you know, uh, working at Pitt, everybody was doing HIV research pretty mm-hmm. much uh, back when I was doing my PhD. That was still the the you know, rage, and uh, very good research going on. And I know one lab showed that B cells mm-hmm. can be affected. So my point is, it's not just one type of cell. And so forever we thought it was one cell. And they were like, oh, wait, macrophages get infected cells. too. Yeah. Another type of immune cell, mm-hmm. right? And then they showed dendritic cells mm-hmm. can be infected. 
And so all of these different immune cells will, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a way it could hide out in an autoimmune cell. Yeah. And so when you use stem cell therapy, you pretty much kill all the bone marrow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's immune cells throughout the body. And yeah. I don't know, perhaps they might not be killed. So I would be interested to see from these um, patients who have been quote unquote cured due to the bone marrow transplants, tracking them long term, yes. like cohort style, seeing when, unfortunately, if this occurs, when did the virus or the viral load begin to increase significantly it, it increase i mean i yeah. i after undergoing stem cell therapy i sure hope they never had hiv it's, right. it's gone yeah, yeah. i mean that's because now they got to live with immunosuppressive therapy mm-hmm. right? yeah no no it's a no, very it's it's a yeah. it's a weight on your shoulders that you never really get rid of right and and, and remember the the absence of virus in a in, in a person that has been treated is only as good as our best detection limits. Well, now, wait a second. In this case, this is one of the best detection systems we have. I know it is. 10 copies <laughs> of viral RNA per mil of blood. I, I know good. it That's is. huge. I know it is. But, but could it still be there? Could it still be there lower the than our detection limit? There's the possibility. 100% it can. Yes. Yeah. And it may be as DNA. We're not, uh-huh. we're not looking at DNA copies. Yeah, that's, that's right. True. I'm we're, thinking that, that these people probably still have it, unfortunately. And I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. Could be dormant. Could be dormant. So even without the need for a bone marrow transplant or the need for drug treatments, less than half of percent of people with HIV, it has been documented that the virus will stop replicating and effectively, you know, you don't worry about the HIV progression, right? And uh, a recent study in Nature demonstrated that the um, when the virus is hiding or being integrated within human genes, as Dr. A just described, um, the virus may localize within parts of the genome where it cannot replicate and it effectively becomes trapped in your genome. So you suppress the replication of the HIV virus and the infection is kept under control. Now, they, so it integrates into a part of the genome that's never translated it, it or transcribed? That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it becomes yeah. trapped. That's interesting, isn't it? And uh, they mean, have a possible mechanism that they theorized uh, at the end of the paper but apparently for decades now, without the use of medication, this singular patient has had the virus suppressed. No and is replication. that due to a mutation of some sort that, that made that in- integration into a random part of the probably non- non-transcribed genome? It has to be. It has, it has to, be, to be because the insertion uh, integration site, same thing, it's very highly regulated or, yes, else, or else HIV wouldn't exist. Exactly. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Yeah, and, it, it, and if the integration was random, HIV would probably be gone a long time ago yeah. because the mm-hmm. majority of our genome is not transcribed. Correct. It's junk, so, junk so what DNA. we're saying is the DNA would insert itself somewhere that's not currently being used By to the make body. new yeah. genes. Therefore, right. you, you wouldn't be able to make viral genes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's kind of cool. And again, this is still preliminary. We don't want this people to go out from this don't podcast get a saying, stem cell "Oh, <laughs> there's an HIV cure now." Um, the, the, we need more data concerning this, and we need to identify the mechanism of this trapping and locking in the regions of this these random parts of the genome. Sure. And hopefully, these data can be used as a mechanism to hopefully result in maybe a better functional cure. Yeah. Maybe the uh, virus can be targeted to a part of the genome where it will not be replicated, where it can be trapped in the future. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I just want to say, maybe to end this section, that when when I was growing up and uh, HIV was a death sentence. It was. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was. AIDS yeah, it was. was a death sentence. And there was not a lot. I mean, if you've ever seen Dallas Buyers Club, if you haven't seen oh, that. Is that a great it's movie. A great I, movie. I, I can't great, watch it ever again. Great. It's, it's so heart wrenching. Uh, it is. It's, it's terrible. But to it's watch, historically yeah, but it's accurate. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's it was well done. It was it was just well done. But but those drugs were cancer drugs. Yeah. Right. And so they were really nasty side effects. Mm-hmm. The we spent a lot of money on HIV research. Probably more than yeah. every other infectious disease combined. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's interesting. Paid off. It's interesting you bring that up. It has paid off. It's interesting you bring that up because people say, "Oh, when is this coronavirus epidemic or pandemic going to be gone?" And sometimes I say, "Look at HIV. We've had a pandemic since the '80s." And who's talking about it? Anymore? Thank you. It's Nobody's still a pandemic, yeah. still going on. Has been going on for and, thirty and years. Just, so you think about it. People in in uh, other countries that might be poor economically. 
they have people still dying from AIDS yeah, at have. a very rapid rate. Yeah. AIDS is more of a killer than malaria now in Africa. And when and is the last? Kids. But when it is has, the last time it has you been heard, reduced dramatically? Well, it doesn't affect my neighbor, so. Well, when's la- exactly when's right. the last time you heard it? Had a profile story on the Today Show or Good I, Morning I America? Yeah, right. I think that's what Doctor A saying. Yeah, exactly. people talk about oh, when does this pandemic end? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, HIV is. We have effective therapy. It's expensive. Right. right, it is. It's come a long way, but you, you, you know, we don't worry about dying from AIDS anymore. There is management therapy, in not this, a cure. In, in this country. In this yeah. country. In the Western countries. And in Western yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, to his uh, credit, and he is by no way uh, one of my favorite uh, presidents in the last 10, 15 years, but to his credit, George uh, W. Bush, the son did a lot for HIV in Africa. He is credited with saving well, tons it, of lives. Him and Bill Gates together. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Absolutely. funding came out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's just a dent in the surface, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. But they, they his uh, AIDS Africa, HIV Africa well, initiative. Could you give him kudos to him? That's the only thing I give him kudos oh, for. Okay. Uh, easy yeah. now. <laughs> Let's not get too excited here. I was really excited <laughs> yeah. for a moment. Uh, but gl- you know, uh, I saw that glimmer of hope in your po- eye. Po- politics is, is politics. Uh, sadly, is is what made HIV worse because it was ignored in the eighties by the administration at the time. They 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 were not concerned about it. It was. At the time, what was called a gay disease in San Francisco, right? And it was it was like, well, we didn't care, and and it ballooned, and then it became a problem for everyone in the population. Then we started paying attention, and but yeah, that wouldn't be nice if we just leave politics out of science all the time. It's just impossible. I don't think well, you could do it. <laughs> we could try our best. We no, can. I think you could do it. <laughs> like he could do it. All right, let's go on. Are we? Are we done for now? We'll do game segment. And let's right. do game segment. Yeah, we'll come back to the right. other uh, so study later. Good yeah. news, bad news from the last uh, last episode. Um, just just to remind you of. Well, I'll remind you in a second. We had a couple people guess and nobody got it right. So uh, which said <laughs> it, it's sad, but you know what? Thank you for playing. And, That's right. We want you to keep playing. You know, if, if you're still listening at this point, uh, hold on because. Uh, we're going to I think we'll offer two prizes this week. We are. You can episode. guess for this week and you can guess for last week. We yeah. still have the gift. We haven't given it away. Same weeks, but it's months. We know that. <laughs> so I'm going to read last episode's riddle real quick um, so that uh, that's that's riddle number one. Uh, and it is in the latter part of the 2000s in Oregon. Some previously healthy patients developed respiratory symptoms including cough, shortness of breath, and chest pain, followed by fever, headache, and a painfully stiff neck. Most of the patients had spent time outside in the forests, including camping and hiking. And some of these previously healthy patients succumbed to meningitis caused by a rare fungal pathogen, which was originally thought to be a tropical fungus, but is now endemic in the Pacific Northwest U.S., um, including parts of Washington and Oregon, and several cases reported now in California and Idaho. So the question from last episode was, what was the fungus, and how did it get to the Pacific Northwest? We had some good guesses, but not quite, so we're going to open it back up. If we don't get any uh, correct answers, we'll just uh, maybe recirculate that case in the future so good i hope we'll get some okay so that was last episode for this episode's new riddle i like this one thank you so much i wrote it today (laughs) (laughs) so now on to this episode's guess that microbe in 2017 a male patient developed abdominal pain nausea and vomiting and a high fever he did not respond to therapy and later developed fluid around his pancreas that was contaminated with a multi-drug-resistant bacteria called Acinetobacter baumannii. Um, just an aside, it's a highly antibiotic-resistant bug. Um, we actually have a, a master student doing some some work with that and some novel therapies as well. Jolly good. We only give the students the most highly drug-resistant bacteria to play with. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank God for autoclaves. That's right. 
the patient was placed on a three antibiotic regimen that was initially effective, but the bacteria soon developed resistance to all three antibiotics. During a procedure, the bacteria escaped into his bloodstream. The patient became septic and he eventually lapped into a two month long coma, two month long coma. At the 11th hour, when it appeared that all hope of treatment was lost, an alternative experimental treatment was identified and approved for use. This alternative treatment was injected into the patient's body and bloodstream and effectively killed the drug-resistant bacteria with little to no adverse side effects. The patient awoke and survived an otherwise lethal infection. This episode's question is, what exactly was in that alternative experimental therapy that killed a highly antibiotic-resistant bacteria with little to no side effects. Good question. That is a good question. And something near and dear to my heart is alternative therapies. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, like Dr. Keller said, we have two riddles for you because we have not received a correct answer for the first one. And quickly on to listener emails. Rick writes, Dear BioBusters, thank you for the mini microbes. I'll be putting them on my shelf at work. I just wanted to let you know I received them. You all take care and stay safe. Lick Rick Lorenzo. <laughs> you are having a heck of a time right now. I was going to say Lick, Lick, Lick Lorenzo. Lorenzo. <laughs> I want to uh, congratulate Dr. Lorenzo on the birth of his daughter. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Oh, That's those mini good, microbes were the perfect. Mi the mini microbes should be perfect. So you should take them home, buddy. All right. Uh, okay. Any other, uh, any, anything you want to add? I guess the only thing I would say is uh, be on the lookout for some exciting news about the BioBusters in terms of availability and um, a rebrand. A rebrand of the podcast coming up uh, by the time of the next episode. So stay tuned. Indeed. Indeed. And we promise we will be a little bit more active. I'm active. I don't know about you. We'll get to you in another episode <laughs> shortly. All right. That's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can also just Google the BioBusters. We'll come up along with a few other questionable websites. But, but uh, ours is yeah. the first link. Uh, you can uh, uh, get us on any uh, podcast catcher. Uh, I'm Delbert, and you can find me at Dr. Delbert on Twitter. Uh, Chris Fawner can be found at Fawner916. And uh, Chris Keller can be found in his office. In his office. Or in Lecture Hall C. Or Lecture Hall D. Or WeCom West. Not anymore. Or research, I guess. But All right. Or home. Or, or home. <laughs> Should we give your personal please, home address? Please. Edinburgh, you know, just... Uh, uh, well, that should probably be enough. Right? Just walk around for a <laughs> One few hours. One house in Edinburgh, that's yeah. right. All right, thank you all for listening, and thanks to Baha Namani for the music. Thank you. Thank you.